0: So we're going to continue our study in the books of 1 Samuel. We've reached 2 Samuel chapter 2. We're going to pick it up in verse 1. Then it came about afterwards that David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to one of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. So David said, Where shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam the Jezreelite, and Abigail the widow of Nabal the Carmelite, and David brought up his men who were with him, each with his household. And they lived in the cities of Hebron. Then the men of Judah came, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. So David, at long last, is recognized as king by at least one tribe in Israel. Remember, David had been anointed secretly by Samuel many years before. And he's been very patient. He hasn't tried to overthrow King Saul, even though Saul... Um, was often trying to kill him. No, David is putting his fate in God's hands. And even after Saul dies in battle, which happens at the end of the book of 1 Samuel, even then David doesn't just impulsively grab for the throne. He asks God, is now the time? And God says, yes. And then he says, where shall I go up? That is, where do I start my reign as king? And God says to Hebron. Which just got me wondering why, why Hebron of all the towns in Israel, why this one? You know, you come across these seemingly trivial parts of the Bible, and oftentimes there's so much going on under the surface. So that's all this talk is going to be about this morning. Is just attempting to answer that question: Why this one particular town? Why should David start his reign there? And to answer that. We need to go on a sort of whirlwind tour of the Old Testament. So I'm going to make six suggestions of why God might have chosen Hebron. And because I'm throwing so much at you, there's a uh, handout in your bulletin that Amanda helped me put together that lists those six answers and gives some scriptures that you can explore later if you'd like. Now, we don't know for sure which one of these suggestions is the right answer, or if it's some combination of them, or all of them, or none of them. But the history is fascinating, to me at least, and I hope it will be to you too. And as always, as we talk about David's life, we want to be thinking about Jesus, the son of David, the greater king that David's life is pointing to. So why Hebron? Well, first of all, you could say that Hebron is where it all began. Maybe you've noticed that real estate is very important in the Old Testament. God had promised his chosen people land. And the first land that they actually owned in the promised land is right here in Hebron. So you go back to Genesis 13. Oh, Lord have mercy. First, uh, Genesis 13. Then Abram, which is Abraham's name before God changed it, moved his tent and came and dwelt by the oaks of Mamre, which are in Hebron. And there he built an altar to the Lord. We're going to come back to that altar at the very end of this talk. Um, But God brings Abraham out of his homeland to this new land, and he promises Abraham everything that he can see. But at this point in the narrative, Abraham's just a visitor in the promised land. But that's going to change uh, toward the end of his life. In Genesis 23, we read, Sarah, Abraham's wife, died in Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Then Abraham rose from before his dead and spoke to the sons of Hath, saying, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me a burial site among you that I may bury my dead out of my sight. So the sons of Hap, those are like the native people living around Hebron. And they agree to give Abraham a plot of land to use as a burial site. And what follows is this detailed negotiation between Abraham and these locals over which piece of land he should be given and how much he should pay for it. And as you read this chapter, you find yourself thinking... Why is the author taking up so much space to describe this? I mean, it seems kind of dull. There are these you know, exciting battle scenes in Genesis that are given less ink than this real estate deal. At the end of the chapter, it concludes with this. After this, Abraham buried Sarah, his wife, in the cave of the field at Machpelah, facing Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. So the field and the cave that is in it were deeded over to Abraham for a burial site by the sons of Heth. And here's the great importance of this passage. The land was deeded over to Abraham. Up until that point, as Abraham points out to the sons of Heth, he's just a sojourner in the land. But now he owns a piece of it. And it may be a small piece, but he owns it. And he's going to bury his wife there and he's ultimately going to be buried there himself. His son Isaac and and his wife Rebecca will be buried there. And actually the remains of Jacob and Joseph are going to be carried all the way from Egypt to be buried there. How interesting that the only piece of the promised land owned by God's people at this time is a little cemetery. Maybe to put that in our context, think about Jamestown. Remember your, you know, from your high school history class, um, the first permanent English settlement in America was at Jamestown. And um, the colonists had a hard time, didn't they? I mean, they mostly starved to death for the first few years and, and died of disease. And after several years of suffering, all they could really say that they owned was a, a cemetery. But we can... We can look back at our history. We can say that's where it all started. A nation of 300 million people began with that little plot of land. I think Hebron is is something like that for the Israelites. So what does this have to do with David? Well, he's going to begin his reign as king in the very place where Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and Sarah, Rebekah, and Leah were all buried. As it says in Hebrews about the patriarchs, All these died in faith without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. David is going to begin his reign in this graveyard. The promises that Abraham and his family died believing are beginning to come true. David's going to start in that little place, and and he's going to expand the borders of that kingdom. So that's that's one. Uh, second, Hebron was in the territory of Judah. You remember that Israel was divided into 12 tribes that descended from the 12 sons of Jacob. One of those tribes was Judah, and David was from that tribe. He had grown up in Bethlehem, a little town that was also a town in Judah. And that would just be a piece of trivia, except that God had special plans for that tribe. Near the end of the book of Genesis, we find the old patriarch Jacob blessing his sons. He has something to say to each one of them. And to Judah, he says this, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples." And this blessing serves as a prophecy. It will be a descendant of Judah who will rule Israel. Now, the first king, Saul, uh, was descended from Benjamin, but David is from the tribe of Judah. So part of the answer as to why God might have chosen Hebron is that it is a town in Judah, and Judah is where the Messianic king is supposed to come from, and David is a picture of that Messianic king. Third, Hebron is the town, actually, of one specific member of the tribe of Judah. Joshua fourteen thirteen says this, So Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, for an inheritance. What is that all about? Joshua is the guy who brings the Israelites into the promised land, And after they've mostly conquered it, Joshua assigns portions of the land to the various tribes. So, you know, Judah, you're going to get this land to the south. Dan, you're going to give this land to the north and so forth. Well, Caleb and his family are given the city of Hebron all to themselves. Why would that be? It's a result of something that happened years earlier. So when Israel was in the wilderness and they were on their way to the promised land... We read this in Numbers 13. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, which I am going to give to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. And the leader chosen from the tribe of Judah is Caleb. And so these 12 guys do what they're told. They go and they spy out the land. They come back with this report. Verse 27. Thus they told him and said, We went into the land where you sent us, and it certainly does flow with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. They had some grapevines with them. Nevertheless, the people who live in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. So all the spies agree that the promised land is a good land. But ten of the twelve men think it would be impossible to conquer because the sons of Anak are there, the the Anakim, these large warriors, these giants, it appears to them. I say that we became like grasshoppers in our own sight when we saw these guys. This reminds me of my experience playing basketball at Golden Sierra High School. Um, Golden Sierra is a little school and we lost... Almost every game um, i mean we we got beat like a drum like night after night, um, and I can remember, I can still remember the feeling of watching the opposing team come out onto the court during warm ups, um, and they were always bigger and taller than we were i was i 'm six four now I was five nine when I was sixteen, and I was one of the taller guys on the team, so you know. I don't think we would have said this but we were all intimidated. We felt like grasshoppers in our own sight, you know. Um, although I guess that doesn't really work with basketball because grasshoppers are small but they can jump really well and and uh and we couldn't even do that. So we were really hopeless, you know. And I remember just, you know, I remember losing the game in my mind before I actually before I actually played the game. And I think that's what's happening with, uh, with the spies of Israel. Except Caleb. Caleb feels differently. Verse 30, Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should by all means go up and take possession of it, for we will surely overcome it. Caleb isn't afraid of the Anakim, and so Caleb is given Hebron as his inheritance. How appropriate that David would start his reign in Hebron, the inheritance of Caleb. Caleb comes to prominence because his trust in God was greater than his fear of giants. And David comes to prominence for exactly the same reason. Remember when all of Israel was trembling before Goliath, young David trusted in the Lord. So Hebron really is is the perfect city for a king to start his reign in. It was a city of Judah from which the Messianic king would come, and it was a city of Caleb, the would-be giant slayer. Fourth, we're halfway there, you guys. Hang in there. Hebron was also a city of Levi, which was another tribe of Israel. Why would it be that two tribes would both be in the same city because weren't the tribes supposed to be segregated, you know, each with their own territory? Well, if we go back to Jacob's prophecy at the end of Genesis, we saw what he had to say to his son uh, Judah. Here's what he had to say about his son Levi. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Their swords are implements of violence. Let my soul not enter into their council. Let not my glory be united with their assembly. Because in their anger they slew men, and in their self-will they lamed oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will disperse them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And it turns out that's exactly what happens. Um, the Levites end up scattered all across Israel, How that happens is very interesting, though. So, before the Israelites ever reached the Promised Land, God made it clear that they weren't going to inherit any of the land, the Levites. The Promised Land would be divided among 11 tribes, excluding Levi. Deuteronomy 18 tells us that the Levitical priests, the whole tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. They shall eat the Lord's offerings by fire and his portion. They shall have no inheritance among their countrymen. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. Now, when it says that the Levites have no inheritance, it sort of makes them sound like the black sheep of the family. You know, like you know, the lawyers reading out the will and Levi's the poor kid that doesn't get anything, gets left out. Well, the Levites didn't get a physical inheritance, but they actually got this rich, spiritual inheritance. The Lord is their inheritance, it says. See, the Levites were given this special role of taking care of the tabernacle, this sort of um, portable temple that they carried around in the wilderness. And God says that they will eat from the sacrifices offered in the tabernacle. That's how they're going to make their living. Okay, so that's great, but... If they don't actually inherit any of the land, where are they going to live? That was certainly a question in the Levites' minds. Joshua 21. Then the heads of households of the Levites approached Eliezer the priest, and Joshua the son of Nun, and the heads of households of the tribes of the sons of Israel. They spoke to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, saying, The Lord commanded through Moses to give us cities to live in with their pasture lands for our cattle. So the sons of Israel gave the Levites from their inheritance these cities. And if you read the rest of the passage, you find out that the Levites were actually given 48 cities to live in. And these 48 cities were scattered all around Israel, one of which was Hebron. Now, what does that have to do with David? Well, one of the most beautiful and important psalms that David wrote is Psalm 16, a psalm that's often quoted in the New Testament. And listen to these verses from that psalm. David writes the Lord is the portion of my inheritance and my cup you support my lot the lions have fallen to me in pleasant places indeed my heritage is beautiful to me That sounds like something a levite would say doesn't it You know a levite might say when the land was portioned out my tribe didn't get any we didn't get any of the earthly treasures of the promised land but you know what we got something far better The Lord is our portion. See, we were given the incredible privilege of working in the tabernacle, of being near to God, and that heritage is beautiful to us. Well, David is from the tribe of Judah. He's not from the tribe of Levi. But I think David feels a kind of kinship to the Levites because he knows what this feels like. He knows what it's like to not have a home in Israel. He knows what it's like to be on the run he knows what it's like to have to rely on God for everything. And so Hebron, as a city of the Levites, I think it's a very appropriate place for David to begin his reign. Fifth, among the 48 cities given to the Levites, 13 cities were given to the sons of Aaron. It's Joshua 21.4. And the sons of Aaron, the priests who were of the Levites, received 13 cities by lot from the tribe of Judah and from the tribe of the Simeonites and from the tribe of Benjamin. So this this can start to sound kind of confusing, but um, what you need to understand is that the sons of Aaron were the priests in Israel. Okay, so Aaron was the brother of Moses. He was from the tribe of Levi. And God uh, makes it clear that only Aaron and his sons are going to be able to serve as priests. All of the tribe of Levi help out with the tabernacle. They all, you know, they have some role, whether it's transporting the equipment or taking care of it or leading worship songs. But it's only the special class of Levites that are descended from Aaron that serve as priests, that, that offer sacrifices and go into the holy place. And so uh, Hebron is not only one of the 48 cities of Levi, it's also one of the 13 cities of the sons of Aaron. That's in verse 13. So the, it's those sons of Aaron, the priests, they gave Hebron. I hope that all makes some sense. Why would it be important for David to begin his reign in a city of priests? Well, in my next sermon on 2nd Samuel 6, we're going to see David bringing the ark of the covenant into Jerusalem and we're going to see him doing some priestly things, which is very strange because the prerogatives of the priests were protected very carefully. You know, if you weren't a son of Aaron, and David wasn't, you didn't just sort of casually assume the role of a priest. You could get killed for doing that, and it didn't matter if you were a king. But with David, there's this hint of something new. David is going to be a king who also does some priestly things. Now, I'm not saying that David was a priest, but I'm just saying that that he's pointing us that direction. David is a picture of this coming priest king, this coming Messiah. There's a lot more that we could say about that that we don't have time for, but suffice it to say that with God's choice of Hebron, David is going to begin his reign in a city fit for a king and a city fit for a priest. Sixth, and and last, and maybe most importantly, Hebron is designated as something called a city of refuge. A city of refuge. Joshua 20 explains that a little bit. Then the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel, saying... Designate the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who kills any person unintentionally without premeditation may flee there and they shall become your refuge from the avenger of blood. And then verse seven. So they set apart Kadesh in Galilee and the hill country of Naphtali and Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. (coughs) now this this idea of a city of refuge is such a powerful idea in the Old testament law, and maybe the the simplest way to think about it is you know how when we used to play tag as kids, you would have um, you would have a home base, and if you were touching base you you were safe and you couldn 't be tagged right The idea of a city of refuge is something like that obviously uh, you know, it wasn 't a game, it was deadly serious but That's kind of the idea. Now, to appreciate the concept, we have to appreciate how different their law was from our own. And maybe the most striking difference is that there's no mention in the law of Moses of jails, which is foreign to us because we're used to thinking that if someone breaks the law in any serious way, they're supposed to go to jail. In the law of Moses, that was never the case. So if you stole something and you were caught, you had to make restitution. If, um, you know, if you injured someone, you, were, you had to be injured. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And if you murdered someone, then you had to be killed. And justice was swift. There wasn't a lot of due process. You didn't, you know, wait around in jail for your trial. Because, again, there were no jails. And importantly, in the case of murder, it wasn't the state that carried out the punishment. It was a member of the affected family. Now that just seems crazy to us, but try and imagine this. So they had someone called the Goel in the family. Maybe you remember that word from our study of Ruth. Um, Goel is often translated kinsman redeemer. It was the Goel's job to protect his family, and sometimes that meant buying property. So if you lost your property, you know, one of your family members fell on hard times. Then the Goel's job was to redeem the land, meaning to buy it back, to keep it in the family. And that's what's going on in, in the book of Ruth. And it's a beautiful story. It, you know, it reads like a romance. But sometimes the job of the Goel sounds more like a crime thriller because part of their role of protecting the family meant avenging the death of a family member. Now imagine in this context, Okay, if you're guilty of manslaughter, not murder, but manslaughter, meaning that you killed someone unintentionally. Suppose, for example, as we're told in Deuteronomy, a man goes into the forest with his friend to cut wood and his hand swings the axe to cut down the tree and the iron head slips off the handle and strikes his friend so that he dies. He may flee to one of these cities and live. That is such a wonderfully random example, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, of all the possible scenarios it, that just kills me. Um but it it does make the point, doesn't it? I mean in a culture where justice was swift, you wouldn't want to wait around and explain to this poor guy's relatives what happened. Well, you know, you see I was swinging the axe and whoops off flew the handle and the head of the axe and it split his head open. But, you know, it was an accident, I swear. I mean, you wouldn't do that. You would just run. You would flee to the nearest city of refuge. And what would happen is the elders of that city would interview you and if they were convinced that it was truly manslaughter and not murder, they'd let you into the city and they would protect you. And you'd be protected Forever, so long as you stayed there. That's Numbers 35. But if the manslayer at any time goes beyond the border of his city of refuge to which he may flee, and the blood avenger, that phrase, blood avenger, that's a translation of that Hebrew word, goel. The blood avenger finds him outside the border of his city of refuge, and the blood avenger kills the manslayer, he will not be guilty of his blood because he should have remained in his city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, the manslayer shall return to the land of his possession. There's so much that we could explore there that we don't have time for, but this notion of a city of refuge, it would have had strong appeal for David, wouldn't it? David wasn't guilty of manslaughter at this point, but he knew what it was like to be on the run. I mean, Saul had been pursuing him. David had been looking for a place of refuge. And so for David to begin his kingdom in a city of refuge feels appropriate, not only because David was looking for a place of refuge, but because, in a sense, David was a place of refuge. Many people found refuge with David. I, we've quoted this before, but I love this verse in 1 Samuel 22. It says, Everyone who was in distress... And everyone who was in debt and everyone who was discontented gathered to him and he became captain over them. He's talking about David there. In other words, these people weren't taking refuge behind the walls of a city. They were taking refuge in the person of David. And what a picture that is of what we do as Christians. We take refuge in the person of Jesus, the son of David. Okay, um, let me make one more point about the cities of refuge and then we'll wrap this up. So it would seem that Hebron had been chosen as a city of refuge along with the other five cities that were designated that way because it had once had an altar erected there. And that brings us all the way back to the beginning when Abraham first came to Hebron. He Remember, he built an altar. Well, before the Israelites ever made it to the promised land, and therefore before they had any cities to designate as cities of refuge, God had made his altar a place of refuge. So the altar was a place that you could run to for protection. You could take hold of what they called the horns of the altar, these four corners of the altar, and it was like, it was like home base. If you, if you could get there, you were saved. And our, our word... Um, Sanctuary still contains this idea. A sanctuary is a holy place, and a sanctuary is a safe place. So you could take, you could take sanctuary in the sanctuary. David writes about this in the Psalm, Psalm 27. He writes, One thing I have asked from the Lord that I will seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to meditate in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will conceal me in his tabernacle in the secret place of his tent. He will hide me. You know, we call this room that we're sitting in a sanctuary. Does it feel like that to you? Does it feel like a holy place? Does it feel like a safe place? It's a sanctuary not because there's anything special about this building, it's a sanctuary because wherever two or three are gathered in my name, Jesus says, I am there in their midst. Jesus is our sanctuary. Jesus is our city of refuge. So let's just conclude that way. You know, Let's, as always, conclude by thinking about Jesus, the son of David, the greater king that David's life is pointing towards. And just quickly, I want to point out that all the aspects of Hebron that made it appropriate for David also point us to Jesus. Number one, David begins, his, David begins his reign in a cemetery. Well, you could say Jesus does the same thing. When Jesus walks out of the tomb on Easter morning, he is, as Paul says, declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. Two, like David, Jesus is descended from Judah. Both of the genealogies in the Gospels trace the lineage of Jesus back to Judah. That's why Jesus is called the Lion of Judah. Three, like Caleb, Jesus is a giant slayer. He takes on sin and death and Satan, and he defeats them on the cross. Four, like the Levites... Jesus knows what it's like to have no earthly goods. Remember the guys inquiring from Jesus about following him? Jesus tells him, look, the, the, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus, the creator of the universe, is poor and homeless for our sake. He, he has no inheritance but the Lord. Five, like the sons of Aaron, Jesus is our priest. As the book of Hebrews puts it, he's our great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And six, and most precious of all, Jesus is our city of refuge. Come to me, he says, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Come and hide your life in Christ, is how Paul puts that. Come and and take refuge under the shadow of his wings. Come to Jesus, and Jesus says, No one can snatch you out of my hands. Well, just as John comes up to sing one more worship song, I just want to offer the invitation. You know, Jesus would like to reign in your life, and if, if you haven't invited him to do so... It's as simple as becoming a subject of the King of Kings. is as simple as taking a knee and asking Him to be your Lord. And we're going to have the prayer team up here during the song and afterwards. And if you'd like to pray about that or about anything else, please come and pray with us. Uh, God bless you. Have a great Sunday and a great week.